0: You're listening to the Corbett report corbettreport.com
1: welcome my friends welcome to another edition of the Corbett report I am your host James Corbett coming to you as always from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 12th day of November 2011. I would of course like to welcome everyone to the podcast and invite all of you as always to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as interviews, articles, and videos that I've created and conducted over the past several years, and links to my other subsidiary websites like ClimateGate.tv and FukushimaUpdate.com, where you can find daily updates on the unfolding nuclear crisis in Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant in northeastern Japan. Let me use this opportunity to remind all the listeners that I have a brand new media venture as well, Corbett Report Radio, which is blasting out of the Republic Broadcasting Network at republicbroadcasting.org every weeknight at 12 midnight Eastern time, which is 9 p.m. Pacific time. So I hope that you can tune in and join me every weeknight for that. And of course, it is also coming out through the website. And if you are subscribed to the podcast feed, that is the feed that specifically only gives out the podcast episodes, you'll notice that you got the first few episodes of the radio show. But recently, I have stopped putting the radio show in the podcast feed. The radio show now has its own Radio RSS feed. So if you want the radio show specifically, then you can subscribe to the Radio RSS feed. Or, of course, you can subscribe to any of the feeds or all of them all together. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, perhaps you can just go to CorbettReport.com slash subscribe and read up on RSS feeds. But at any rate, all of the feeds are there broken up into different categories like the podcast, the videos, the articles, the interviews, the radio show. And, of course, there is the everything feed where so you can stay up to date with all of the media coming out through CorbettReport.com. And also, let me take a special moment to to thank all of those listeners to the radio show who heard that, yes, indeed, this week I was experiencing... Some major technical difficulties. In fact, really, my computer died on me this week rather abruptly and unexpected, unexpectedly as these things often happen. And, well, I just want to say a wholehearted thank you to those listeners who heard about that on the radio show and then donated through the uh, the subscribe button on CorbettReport.com, either subscribing for a uh, 100 Japanese yen per month subscribe subscription to the Corbett Report or even sending money to my PayPal email address. Yeah, those th- That was great greatly appreciated. And of course, I don't want uh, people who do not have the means to do so to to spend money that they don't have on the Corbett Report. But for those people who do have funds to spare, it's greatly appreciated, especially now as I have this new computer to pay for. So thank you very much for all of the support that you give me. But as always, we have a lot of information to get into today's episode, so let's get straight to it. Welcome to episode 208 of the Corbett Report podcast, The Galton Institute Exposed. If one went to the Galton Institute's homepage at galtoninstitute.org.uk for the very first time without knowing anything about the Institute one would be forgiven for thinking of this as just another learned society of respected scientific peers in fact the website is quite innocuous and gives for all uh, for all to see quite an impression of just another learned society of scientists From the homepage of Galton Institute, it says, Welcome to the Galton Institute, and it reads, The Galton Institute exists to promote the public understanding of human heredity and to facilitate informed debate about the ethical issues raised by advances in reproductive technology. It is a registered charity and does not seek to advocate particular applications of scientific understanding or reproductive technology, only to ensure that those taking decisions do so in the light of all relevant facts and after consideration of all relevant issues, end quote. An eminently respectable and uncontroversial description, I think we can all agree. More information can be gleaned from the About tab of the Galton Institute's homepage, where it reads, quote, the Galton Institute is concerned with the rich complexity of human life, the biosocial fabric with so many biological and social interconnections. Its main work lies in promoting research and understanding in the biosocial sciences in the most liberal sense and, with these broad aims in mind, adopted in 1989 the name of the man who did so much to encourage the rational study of biosocial matters. The Galton Institute derives from the Eugenics Education Society, which was founded in 1907. Since those early days, there has been marked change and recent rapid advance in the knowledge of genetics and human behavior, so that biosocial studies have evolved to a position where biologists, clinicians, demographers, sociologists, and other professionals can work in a mutually productive manner with the aim of increasing understanding of our own species and its problems. The Galton Institute sees its function to be encouragement of progress towards a position in which individuals and groups are well-informed in making decisions on matters that concern them and society as a whole. The Institute is a registered charity and, as such, does not act as an advocate of particular political views. The Institute is keen to expand the range of activities that it undertakes, especially in the field of education, and welcomes constructive suggestions. AIMS A. The Institute promotes and supports the scientific study of human heredity and of its social implications. B. The Institute promotes understanding of the ethical and moral implications of human genetics and of its social implications. C. The Institute promotes the public understanding of human heredity and of its relevance to human well-being in the broadest sense. D. The Institute promotes the study of the historical origins and developments of the above subjects. Activities. A. The Institute has a wide range of interdisciplinary interests which include the measurement and description of human attributes, human heredity, genetic counseling, the influence of the environment and the cause of disease, the family unit, birth control, differential fertility, marriage guidance, infecundity, artificial insemination, voluntary sterilization, termination of pregnancy, demography, population problems, and migration. In a variety of ways, the Institute promotes investigation of and informed comment on such matters. B. The Birth Control Trust of the Institute supports practical initiatives in birth control, especially programs to increase access to women's health care services in developing countries. C. Each year, the Institute holds a major conference in which a biosocial topic of current and international importance is explored by authorities representing different disciplines. The Galton Lecture is delivered during the symposium, and the proceedings of the symposium are subsequently published. D. The Institute sponsors the annual Darwin Lecture in Human Biology and, in association with the Royal Statistical Society and the Master of Pembroke College, the biennial Caradog jones Lecture. E. The Institute publishes quarterly its newsletter. It is available by subscription, but is received free of charge by members. The content includes articles... Editorial comment on items of topical interest, notices, and memoranda on the Institute's activities and book reviews. F. The Institute publishes, in addition to the proceedings of its conferences, occasional books and pamphlets on subjects relevant to its objects. G. The Institute supports conferences and other activities of kindred organizations relevant to its objects. End quote. Well, a thoroughly detailed and itemized description that is perhaps worthy of its eponymous predecessor, Sir Francis Galton. Now, I'm sure that many of my longtime listeners are already familiar with this patron saint of eugenics, and in fact, the coiner of the term itself, Sir Francis Galton, and all of the various connections that he has to the eugenics line, which has existed throughout the decades and demonstrably still exists today, as we'll see later in today's episode. But for those who are getting acquainted with Sir Francis Galton for the first time, allow me to quote from that bastion of truthiness, Wikipedia. Sir Francis Galton, cousin of Douglas Strutt Galton, half-cousin of Charles Darwin, was an English Victorian polymath, anthropologist, eugenicist, tropical explorer, geographer, inventor, meteorologist, protogeneticist, psychometrician, and statistician. He was knighted in 1909. Galton had a prolific intellect and produced over 340 papers and books throughout his lifetime. He also created the statistical concept of correlation and widely promoted regression towards the mean. He was the first to apply statistical methods to the study of human differences and inheritance of intelligence and introduced the use of questionnaires and surveys for collecting data on human communities, which he needed for genealogical and biographical works and for his anthropometric studies. He was a pioneer in eugenics, coining the term itself and the phrase nature versus nurture. His book, Hereditary Genius... 1869, was the first social-scientific attempt to study genius and greatness. As an investigator of the human mind, he founded psychometrics, the science of measuring mental faculties, and differential psychology, and the lexical hypothesis of personality. He devised a method for classifying fingerprints that proved useful in forensic science. He also conducted research on the power of prayer, concluding it had none by its null effects on the longevity of those prayed for. As the initiator of scientific meteorology, he devised the first weather map, proposed a theory of anticyclones, and was the first to establish a complete record of short term climatic phenomena on a European scale. He also invented the Galton whistle for testing differential hearing ability. End quote. Now if all of this preamble it sounds very dry and very staid and very well clinical and scientific, then I suppose that probably is part of the scrupulous way in which his reputation is maintained by his progenitors in the Galton Institute. And just to clarify what I mean by that, well, let's just establish right away that the Galton line is still alive and kicking and very much part of the Galton Institute, as evidenced by the fact that one of the two vice presidents of the Institute is none other than Professor David Galton. So certainly the Galton line continues on, and as we will see, it has been absolutely at the heart of this Galton Institute, aka the British Eugenics Society, which it was known as until 1989. Now, for anyone who understands eugenics and its history, I don't have to explain to you the rather brazen way in which this society persisted in keeping its eugenics epithet until 1989. That is almost unthinkable considering the way that eugenics has been thoroughly discredited and absolutely debunked and vilified since the 1940s, if not even earlier. So for them to persist in that name long after all of the other eugenicists went under underground with their intentions including of course the american eugenics society which morphed into the population council in a way that i've described in previous episodes of this podcast well, if you understand the fact that they clung onto that name of eugenics for that long, it's rather surprising that, uh, that they are now in the point where they are not so willing to put eugenics up front and center, and you'll notice the word appears nowhere on the front page of the Galton Institute's website, and appears only minor, in a minor footnote almost, in the about section of the website, and is almost scrupulously avoided in in its uh, in at least in its position of non-prominence in the Francis Galton Wikipedia entry which i have no doubt is maintained by the Galton Institute as they have no doubt also maintained their own Wikipedia entry which also gives the impression of a very learned society based in the United Kingdom its aims to promote the public understanding of human heredity and to facilitate informed debate about the ethical issues raised by advances in reproductive technology well all of this is by way of establishing what the Galton Institute claims itself to be. But of course, we are not here today to interrogate that what it claims itself to be very deeply. We are here to try to get to the bottom of what the Galton Institute really is, And what it represents, and even what it is currently aiming at and pressing forward to attempt to accomplish, which is a tall order for any podcast episode. So you will forgive me if I fall short of that mark, but I think we must try nonetheless. So try we will. So I guess probably the best way to start this type of podcast episode would be to establish the namesake of the Institute itself, Francis Galton. And as I said, Francis Galton, of course, is a polymath who is renowned for his scientific ability in a number of fields and his advances in a number of fields. But, uh, of course, eugenics is one of those fields in which he uh, not only was not only a, a leading figure, but was in fact the progenitor of that as a study. So I think it should not and cannot be elided in the way that the description in Wikipedia attempts to by placing it as the second in his long list of accomplishments after anthropologist. I think that's a bit of a studied placement in terms of trying to downplay the eugenics angle of Sir Francis Galton. And we see a lot of this in a lot of the information that has come out about Francis Galton in recent years. I suppose uh, we see we see that for example in the conflicted way which even the university college london which houses the galton collection a collection of papers and uh, and other artifacts from francis galton's personal collection well even they treat h- him in a somewhat conflicted manner always being careful to note his eugenics past but attempting in various ways to circumvent that in order to basically praise him and his lineage so it is interesting to take some lo- a look at some examples of that. And interestingly enough, I did not even realize this myself, but earlier this year marked, in fact, the centenary of Francis Galton's death. So 100 years since the death of Francis Galton. And because of that, there were obviously a slew of articles and editorials and, and other events going on, including a rather... Interesting one, which we can pick from NewScientist.com, from their blogs section, from an article on the 8th of June 2011, Francis Galton, Polymath, Eugenicist, Comedian. And it's a rather bizarre article talking about a comedian who is giving a comedic performance at University College London about Francis Galton and his work, and picking on some of his rather bizarre habits. Because once you start to find out a little bit more about the man, you start to see that he was at the very least an obsessive compulsive when it came to counting and categorizing things, and perhaps even somewhat deranged in the way that he approached the world. But I'll let you explore some of those anecdotes for yourself, and that might be a good place to start with that article. There are other articles online about his centenary. For example, Bloomsbury Bites had an article in September, Francis Galton, a centenary and and an elusive archive, noting that, in fact, the archive is not open to the public. And, uh, And so that's a rather interesting aspect of all of this. But I suppose to really start establishing Sir Francis Galton and his legacy and the way that that is treated in this day and age by the respectable scientific community... Let's start by listening to an interesting lecture that was delivered about Francis Galton and the way that his, well, his eugenical ideas was very much the basis for a Victorian approach to the science of criminology and the establishment of many things that we take for granted today, including, of course, fingerprinting. So let's listen to an audio excerpt from a lecture delivered by Natasha McEnroe, the curator of the Galton Collection at UCL, who delivered a speech at the Royal Society, which is an institution in need of its own expose, I suppose, but that's uh, its own podcast episode for another time. But she delivered a speech on Francis Galton's legacy entitled Foul of Mouth and Evil Eyed Francis Galton and the Victorian Criminal. And it's an interesting lecture, so I do suggest that you listen to it in its entirety. But right now, let's listen to an excerpt in which she talks about Galton and his eugenical ideas and how that played into his crimin- criminological investigations.
0: Francis Galton was one of the last scientific polymaths of the 19th century. He was a pioneer of fingerprinting. He's a eugenicist, a geographer, a meteorologist, a tropical explorer, a statistician, and a best-selling author. Of course, he's also best known in this year um, as being a cousin to Charles Darwin. His inherited wealth meant that he was free to pursue his own interests, which were very, very diverse, but were largely centred around measuring things. And Galton felt very strongly that if you could measure something, then you should do so. (laughs) Arguably, he's the first person to broadly to measure and then quantify the data. He travelled very widely, mapping sections of the African interior in the 1850s, Um, This was a a jaunt that was actually self-funded, but was supported by the National Geographic Society. And of course at this period the National Geographic Society were funding um, explorations of anybody who was brave or reckless enough to want to go go over to to map Africa. And it was during his travels that um, his interest in measuring people began. He had an eye for human differences and, of course, being Galton, once he'd noticed the differences, he began to measure and to collect information on them. Anthropometrics means examining differences and similarities amongst human populations and Galton began a systematic form of early data collection. Now, we would consider his samples to be incredibly small, but this was his was, um, really groundbreaking work and forms a key part in the history of statistics. He initially set up a laboratory as part of the South Kensington Health Fair of 1884, um, and that's what we have um, on the screen at the moment. And people would pay a small sum to have their measurements taken, and they would then be given a copy of the form with their personal data on it. and and a duplicate copy would be kept by Galton. And here we have um, an example of one of the forms. And we can still see these forms because there's thousands of them kept at UCL, um, including, obviously, some famous people of the period as well. Gladstone came twice. Um, I spotted Zola in there the other day when I I was tidying up. Um, but there's also a really wide demographic of people who came to come and be measured schoolboys, builders, schoolmasters, uh, a, a real section of society. So it's, it's an incredibly rich resource. Um, the lab that we saw in the previous slide um, was set out very systematically, and people would just work their way around the room, having the various sort of bits of themselves measured. Um, and these were often, um, measurements were taken out by, uh, with instruments that were designed by Galton himself, um, such as head spanners that we see here. Other instruments designed to measure eye colour, vision, height. Um, there's a lovely set of tiny whistles in the collection that were designed to test the different pitch that people could detect. Um, yes, that, here's the image of them now. I just think it's, I have a lovely picture of Galton um, earnestly blowing this series of whistles into people's ears and then um, carefully noting down what they can detect. In terms of the whistles, I have to actually confess, I'm not entirely convinced how accurate this data was, um, largely because when I had um, a researcher coming around the collection last year looking through some of the forms, he, he pointed out that um, unless these tests were carried out on dogs, it was extremely unlikely that this particularly high level of whistle would be detected by, by a human being, as Galton had noted down. So I just feel that... Um, uh, apologies to Galton that I should, I should flag that up. The the data that Galton collected broadly sent Galton off at an academic tangent, and it was this reason that he relocated to UCL. Galton's work with statistics can be seen as laying down the groundwork um, for modern genetics, and in many ways, UCL is still considered the home of the history of genetics, and of course, um, is still a centre for genetic research today chairs were funded for statistics and also biometrics which is using um, statistical principles to look at biological problems. The Galton collection at UCL um, was the main beneficiary of Galton's will after Galton's death in 1911 and um, he founded the first chair in eugenics that was held by his friend and later biographer Carl Pearson through their work at the Institute, Pearson and Galton believe that by measuring differences and similarities, it was possible to mathematically calculate statistical laws of heredity. Now, Galton's a person that provokes really strong reactions in people. If you, if you Google his name, it'll lead you to all sorts of weird and wonderful places. Um, a recent um, academic mailing list that, I, that I'm on ha- had a, a very um, passionate argument about the people who felt that, um, that his, his ideas should be discredited and we shouldn't even be discussing him and, um, and other people who felt that he was such a key part of learning about the period that we, we neglect him at our peril. And I find it fascinating that he's seen as, as being so controversial today. And I'm going to end up this talk by outlining some of the problems that I would be facing if the collection went on public display for the first time, which I I very much hope will will happen at some stage.
1: Well, we will leave that very interesting lecture at that point, and I think there are at least a number of things to pick up, even from that small excerpt from that much larger lecture. And once again, I would urge you to go and listen to the entire lecture where she gets into the details of the, the collection itself and its rather bizarre contents, including a collection of death masks that were used for the study of uh, differences between different populations. Um, again, very bizarre and interesting collection, or it sounds like it would be if it was ever open to the public. But at any rate, there you go with that excerpt. And I thought there were a number of interesting things, even from that small excerpt. For example, the way in which the speaker is audibly uncomfortable broaching the subject of eugenics and, and its implications, and it's something that she is obviously forced to do in the context of, of where and when she's speaking in the audience she is speaking to, but I think one gets the impression she would prefer to stay away from that subject altogether. So I don't know how much that tells us about Galton himself, but it certainly tells us about the way that his legacy is approached by the scientific community in our day and age, and I think that's reflected in a lot of the writing about Galton that is online in this day and age. But uh, just to per that line of thought to the end, I think it's particularly interesting to listen to the particularly uncomfortable way in which she draws her entire speech to a close.
0: Now, the problems with displaying the Galton collection, which is largely the history of eugenics, are many. Today, Eugenics has the automatic association with Nazi abuses, such as enforced racial hygiene, the extermination of undesired population groups, even human experimentation. So our attitude to eugenics in the early 21st century is understandably extremely guarded. Um, And this impacts on curators such as myself who are trying to interpret this historic material. And it throws up several issues around public engagement with, um, with history generally. Primarily, the difficulty that we have with our hindsight in seeing Galton's work in the context of his own period. And in some ways, that's largely what I've, I've been talking about today. I find looking at this early period um, in the history of eugenics absolutely fascinating. And in many ways, I think that it symbolises the Victorian idealism and passion for improvement. Galton's pioneering work on eugenics is ethically questionable when we regard it in the context of post-World War II culture. And certainly with hindsight, much of the arguments put forward by Galton and his fellow eugenicists um, make very uncomfortable reading for us today. Despite all this, I feel that it's through looking at these difficult subjects that we gain a greater understanding of how people lived and thought in the Victorian age. Thank you very much.
1: Oh, really? The way that the people of the Victorian era thought about uh, crime in that era, is is that right? That's that's the value of studying the Galton Collection? Is it the people, what the people thought in the Victorian era, or is it what a very, 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 very small subset of the British population, who who happened to be part of the British gentry and be these gentlemen scientists who could afford to do whatever they wanted at their own leisure and grace, and who looked down on the rest of the population as just, useless eaters, is, is it what they thought about crime in the Victorian era? Oh yeah, I thought so. And just to make that point and to follow up from the point that we were discussing earlier on in this episode, where I was alluding to the the persistence of the Galton line in the furtherance of the Galton Institute and how the, the Galton name is not just a, a incidental to the, to the name of the Institute. I think it's something that reflects very much the heart and soul of what the Institute is. Because I think we can see from the Institute and its publication, at least from the surface, that the Institute itself is not particularly an organization that does very much. It organizes some conferences and sponsors some work, but it ser- serves, I think, as a central hub for the, the eugenicists of the ages, from the time of Galton down to our own age, to congregate and to to carry on their great work as they deem it. And unfortunately, or fortunately for the, the very, very, very small subset of British society alluded to earlier I guess suppose the uh, the Galton name and the Darwin name and the Huxley name and the uh, other the other branches of the Darwin wedgwood family have uh, figured prominently in the institute's history back when it was known as the British Eugenics Society and this is not a claim that I make out of thin air I could give some demonstration of that fact for example we could go over some of the prominent members of the society from times past for example we could look at Leonard Darwin, who succeeded Francis Galton as the president of the society from 1911. And he had no scientific degree, no scientific training, but he was very worried about the breeding habits of the commoners, and he did marry his first cousin, and he was Charles Darwin's son, so I guess all of that made him more than qualified to take over as president of the eugenics society. In the 1930s, there was a very interesting member who became president of the society, John Maynard Keynes. That's right, those fans of Keynesian economics in the crowd, and if you are a fan of Keynesian economics, I'm not sure what you're doing listening to this podcast, but at any rate, the Keynesians in the crowd might be interested to note, yes, he was a devoted and uh, very, very prominent member of the, the British Eugenics Society. Uh, he was, of course, the celebrated economist who argued for a world central bank and a global currency, and his younger brother just happened to marry Charles Darwin's granddaughter. So again, he was more than qualified to take over the reins of the society. Uh, We also, of course, had Charles Galton Darwin, who we've met in a previous episode of this podcast about the inbred elites and their million-year plan. And he was the prominent member of the society who believed that the lower classes' drive to produce large families was a threat to the future of the human race. And he was Charles Darwin's grandson. So again, he was more than qualified to be a member of the society. And you had Julian Huxley, who was the president of the society from 1959 to 62. Uh, He was a biologist and was perhaps best known. In the society for arguing that human stocks, that's a direct quotation from him, human stocks, needed to be controlled and managed like agricultural stocks, and he gave the Galton Memorial Lecture twice. He received the Darwin Medal from the Royal Society and the Darwin Wallace Medal from the Linnaean Society, and his half-niece married Charles Darwin's great-grandson. So once again, more than qualified to take over the reins as president of the British Eugenics Society. And there are many, many more illustrious members of a similar ilk throughout the ages, but those are just some examples of the, uh, well, quite literally inbred uh, elite and the way that they have basically propagated their family name in the furtherance of this family institution, the Galton Institute, aka the British Eugenics Society. And its furtherance of the idea that, of course, the British gentry are the the f- supreme beings on this planet, and that they all deserve to rule over us. And that is the, the basic underlying ideology that we're dealing with here, and it can be dressed up in many fancy-sounding highfalutin scientific terms, but that is what it is at base, and it was exposed, of course, most famously by the Nazi atrocities that were committed in the name of eugenics, and which, of course, posed a very great problem for eugenics as a whole. And to get more into that subject, and of course also into the galton darwin huxley Wedgwood incestuous family tree that is at the heart of all of this and the galton institute itself let's listen to an excerpt from an interview that was recorded recently with myself i was being interviewed for a forthcoming edition of the boiling frogs post podcast and i don't know when this edition of the podcast will be released i imagine it will be in the coming weeks but at any rate of course subscribers to the corbett report should have their uh, their uh, login and password details to log into boilingfrogspost.com to listen to the podcasts so hopefully it will be released before November 25th, which is the expiry for that trial login and password. But at any rate, let's listen to an excerpt from that conversation in which I'm talking about the Galton-Darwin lineage and the practice of taking eugenics and shifting it into crypto-eugenics. James, you mentioned a moment ago that you had a little more to tell us about uh, the generational... Uh, issue, and I think it was related to Darwin, Galton. But uh, go ahead and explain that. Well, that's right. So uh, I find it particularly interesting that if you look at the um, Galton-Darwin Wedgwood family line and the way that it's unfolded since the time of uh, Charles Darwin, you, you see the very the very um, same family line cropping up again and again in terms of the the founding, and the funding, and the propagation of this research. To the point where the uh, the British Eugenics Society, when it eventually had to change its name because eugenics, of course, was tarnished by the Nazis, and uh, and there was the the beginning of the process uh, called crypto eugenics, a coin that was a term that was coined in the nineteen fifties. So. Um, uh, a very interesting thing which I again I'd like to get into more later but but during that process one of the things they did was change the name of the British Eugenics Society into the Galton Institute and they have the uh, the various Galton awards and, and things which they which they give to people who are pursuing the the types of uh, research that they like which they no longer call eugenics but of course is eugenics in all but name and a, a surprising number of them bear the uh, the number of recipients of these awards actually bear the name of Darwin or Galton or both in some combination, so that you have, um, for example, uh, George Pember Darwin, um, you have um, Edward Leonard Darwin, you have Charles Galton Darwin, and uh, these, these types of people have been either the heads or prominent members of the Eugenics Society for generations, and uh, you also get people like uh, John Maynard Keynes, who was, of course, an, a, ostensibly an economist and is revered for his e- economic work and thinking, but who was also married into this line in a, a, a somewhat... Um, uh two steps removed sort of way, uh his his brother Jeffrey Keynes, um, married Uh, Margaret uh, Darwin, who was the younger sister of Charles Galton Darwin. So he was married into that family line and of course was also the head of the Eugenics Institute. And I just find it interesting to see the the surprising number of people bearing the Darwin or Galton name uh, who have really worked uh, so diligently to propagate this this philosophy uh, throughout the decades. And I'd like to again stress that it continues to be done. It's just no longer done under the name of eugenics, which unfortunately for them has been tarnished by the Nazis. So they wanted to to just uh change the name and and hope that people wouldn't notice i suppose that uh, that the research is essentially the same and go ahead and expand a little bit on crypto eugenics so in the 1950s, in the wake of the the atrocities uh, that the Nazis committed in World War II in the name of their master race philosophy, uh, the eugenicists realized they had uh, the mother of all public relations problems, to put it mildly. So in the 1950s, they, they came along to coin a term, crypto-eugenics, which was the the process of taking eugenics as a philosophy and, and basically moving it underground in a way that uh, people would not be Uh, necessarily understanding what it is or or where it comes from, but it would still serve the same purposes as eugenics. So in the late 1950s, you had uh, a British eugenicist, uh, a member of the Eugenics Society named Dr. Carlos Patton Blacker, and uh, he had been secretary and then general secretary and then director and then chairman of the Eugenics Society, and he proposed, uh, quote, that the society should pursue eugenic ends by less obvious means, that is, by a policy of crypto-eugenics, which was apparently proving successful in the U.S. Eugenics Society. So in the 1960s, the eugenic, uh, sorry, in nineteen sixty. Precisely. The Eugenics Society adopted his idea, and they passed a resolution, and that resolution read, in part, quote, "...the society's activities in crypto-eugenics should be pursued vigorously, and specifically that the society should increase its monetary support of the FPA." which stands for the Fla- Family Planning Association, the English branch of the, the Planned Parenthood, and the IPPF, the International Planned Parenthood Federation, and should make contact with the Society for the Study of Human Biology, which already has a strong and active membership, to find out if any relevant projects are contemplated which the Eugenics Society could assist. So we see this this very self conscious movement in the 1950s and 60s to change the name of eugenics into other other things, and that starts to uh, to take effect um, most effectively when Surprise, surprise, the Rockefeller family gets involved. And um, and in fact, the Rockefellers had been deeply involved in the propagation of eugenics for decades already at at this point, uh, funding most famously or most infamously the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute, which funded the research of Ernst Rudin and the other eugenicists in Nazi Germany. Um, That was, again, directly funded and financed by the Rockefellers. So uh, a lot of people like to think that this is a, a Nazi German philosophy, but it is anything but, and it has been developed by British and um, propagated by American um, uh, monopolists. But at any rate, the Rockefeller family has been at the heart of this for a long time. And in 1952, uh, the Population Council was established by John D. III, uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller III, of course, um, in which it was it was formed in the offices of the old American Eugenic Society and the former head of the Eugenic Society Frederick Osborne was appointed to be the head of the Population Council and the the process basically just transferred the old work of the Eugenic Society into the Population Council so we see this move to try to uh, change the 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 at least the gloss over top of the ideology by painting it as a concern about overpopulation and eventually into other fields like uh, the concern about uh, the environmental effects of humankind as a way of uh, I think uh, quite quite demonstrably and quite openly changing the, the old eugenics philosophy from one that was obsessed with breeding into one that's obsessed with just limiting the amount of people who are able to breed. Um, so it, that gets into the positive and negative eugenics which has been uh, propagated or put forward as as a way of of defining the two branches of eugenics. There's the positive eugenics, like these people at the Population Council are involved in, that that are only concerned about uh, the the the, um, the ability for people to to breed in the way that they want and, and only to the level that they want, and trying to limit people who don't need large families. And then there's negative eugenics, which tries to eliminate people from from the the gene pool, and that was, that was what the Nazis were involved in. So we've seen a self conscious attempt to try to um, Relegitimize and re-reclaim re- the idea of eugenics and, and take it away from that association that a lot of people have with the Nazis and in the 1950s also Julian Huxley the brother of Aldous Huxley uh, was uh, the founder of or the first director of UNESCO, and in the founding document of UNESCO called uh, UNESCO, its uh, purpose and philosophy, he writes about the need to to reclaim and relegitimize eugenics as a field of study. So again, this is something that has been very much in the cultural milieu and the context of this this certain British gentry that set from which it arose for many decades, and just uh, the the. The fact that the Nazis uh, committed such atrocities in the name of eugenics was not going to derail the ultimate uh, goals of this this, uh, ideology itself. Once again, that is from a forthcoming edition of the Boiling Frogs Post podcast, featuring myself as a guest on the subject of eugenics, and we get into a rather in-depth one-hour discussion of the topic, so I suggest you tune in when it becomes available. But at any rate, This is a story which, to a large extent, I'm sure some of the listeners out there are at least partially familiar with by now and know some of these details, perhaps even as well as I do, or maybe, maybe even more so if you've devoted any length of time to researching the topic. So today we are attempting to expose the Galton Institute, and I think we've done that in terms of its founding members and the founding lineage of the line that has really propagated and continued to propagate the eugenics idea throughout the, the generations. But that does leave open the uh, idea of what does this mean in our own current day and age. Certainly we see, you no know, massive holocaust going on at the moment, and all of this seems to have such a friendly face on it, so what possible bad connections can there be to the Galton Institute in our own day and age? Well, that's an interesting question, and one that I will at least attempt to start to answer with a few examples of some of the illustrious members of this learned society, which is what they like to call themselves. Um, And let's just start going through. There's a list of prominent members on the Wikipedia page for the Galton Institute, and I have selected some. I haven't gone through every single one yet. There's uh, dozens and dozens here, so I haven't researched all of them. Some of them, of course, familiar to all of us, like uh, Margaret Sanger, of course, uh, founder of Planned Parenthood, and the lover of H.G. Wells, the other famed British eugenicist from that time period and uh and of course people like John Harvey Kellogg and uh, even famous politicians Arthur Neville Chamberlain and other illustrious members of this society but moving Closer to our own current day and age, we have people like Leonard Arthur and Dr. Leonard John Henry Arthur, was a British doctor, tried in 1981 for the attempted murder of John Pearson, a newborn child with Downs Syndrome. He was acquitted. And as the Wikipedia article goes on to say, an important test case, the trial b- brought to public attention the dilemmas for doctors in treating severely handicapped newborn babies. Dr. Arthur felt strongly that doctors should always act in the best interests of the baby with the the full support of the parents. In some cases, this meant not prolonging the baby's life in order to prevent future suffering. Opinion polls taken at the time of the trial indicated huge public support for Dr. Arthur's approach. The outcome of the trial confirmed that nursing care only is an acceptable form of treatment and that administering a drug to relieve suffering is not an offense, even if it accelerates death. Ambiguities remain, however, about what is legally permissible in the, terms in, in the treatment of handicapped babies. If a doctor or anyone else intentionally kills a child, however disadvantaged, this would still be considered to be murder. And so I think from the very careful wording of that article, which, by the way, does not have a neutrality flag on it, so it's one of those... Few and rare occasions where Wikipedia does not feel the need to dispute the neutrality of this very carefully worded article talking about Dr. Arthur felt strongly that doctors should act in the best interest of the baby. That yeah, no No bias going on there. And using terms like in order to prevent future suffering by not prolonging the baby's life, even if it accelerates death. Uh, again, some very judicious language used there. For some less judicious language, I would suggest at least the abstract to what promises to be an interesting article from the Journal of Applied Philosophy, which was uh, it came out in March of 1984, so this was written around the time frame of Dr. Leonard Arthur's trial, And uh, unfortunately, I don't have an Wiley online library password, so I don't actually have access to the full article itself. But reading from the abstract, quote, If a doctor kills a severely handicapped infant, he commits an act of murder. If he deliberately allows such an infant to die, he is said to engage in the proper practice of medicine. This is the view that emerged at the recent trial of Dr. Leonard Arthur over the death of the infant John Pearson. However, the distinction between murder on the one hand and what are regarded as permissible lettings die on the other rests on the moral difference myth, according to which deliberate lettings die in the practice of medicine are not instances of the intentional causation of death. I argue that a doctor who refrains from preventing a handicapped infant's death causes that infant's death and does so intentionally. He commits an act of murder. But I suggest not all instances of the intentional causation of death are morally wrong. To the extent that they are not, killing rather than letting die will often be the preferable option because more economical of suffering. Hence, what is required is the aboli- abolition of the moral difference myth and the legislation to the effect that those doctors who justifiably cause a patient's death, whether by an action or by an omission, commit no offense at any rate, all of this is by way of saying that this illustrious member of this learned society was embroiled in this murder case, which uh, is probably not one of the things that's hyped so much in the Galton Institute's quarterly newsletter. Uh, Moving on to some of the other illustrious members, we have Sir Cyril Lodowick Burt, who was an English educational psychologist who made contributions to educational psychology and statistics. Well, what did he do? Well, for example... (laughs) Reading from again from Wikipedia, which offers this summation of the Burt Affair, quote, over the course of his career, Burt published numerous articles and books on a host of topics ranging from psychometrics to philosophy of science to parapsychology. It is his research in behavior genetics, most notably in studying the heritability of intelligence as measured in IQ tests, using twin studies that have created the most controversy, frequently referred to as the Burt Affair. Shortly after Burt died, it had become known that all of his notes and records had been burnt, and he was accused of falsifying research data. The 2007 Encyclopedia Britannica noted that it is widely acknowledged that his later work was flawed, and many academics agree that data were were falsified, though his earlier work is often accepted as valid." and I'll let you go on to read about the falsification of his twin studies, and it's interesting to note, and I'll include some links for you, that the uh, the Galton Institute's very own newsletter has been instrumental in fomenting something of a backlash against this reputation of Burt as a, a f- scientific fraud, and in recent years there has been controversy about whether whether maybe he didn't really know that he was committing fraud, or maybe it, was, it wasn't fraud after all. We don't really know after all, because his papers and records were burnt, so, so there's no way of really determining at any rate just another scientific quack in the service of the galton institute and as a third example from recent years i'll provide a link to david coleman demographer again we start from wikipedia which notes that professor david coleman has been the professor of demography in at oxford university since october 2002 and a lecturer since 1980 Between 1985 and 87, he worked for the British government as the special advisor to the Homest Secretary, and then to the Minister of Housing and the Environment. He is a fellow of St. John's College, Oxford. He has published over 90 papers and 8 books, and was the joint editor of the European Journal of Population from 1992 to 2000. In 1997, he was elected to the Council of the International Union for the Scientific Study of Population. He is also an advisor to Migration Watch UK, which he helped to found and is a member of the Galton Institute, formerly known as the Eugenic Society, end quote. Hmm, he's a member of Migration Watch, and is a member of the the Galton Institute, the Eugenic Society. I wonder if there's a correlation there. Well, for more on that, we'll turn to The Guardian, which had an article from March 2007 called Watching David Coleman, which ran under the subhead, The co-founder of Migration Watch wishes to persuade us he is the victim of a smear campaign. But what about his views on eugenics? And that article reads in part quote, Oxford University students have challenged demography professor David Coleman. Coleman is co founder of the anti immigration pressure group Migration Watch and a long term member and sometime office holder in the Eugenics Society and its, its successor in the Galton Institute, thus renamed because the word eugenics, unsurprisingly, shocks. Coleman's figures on the ma- many millions of immigrants who might come to Britain are catchy, clever PR stuff. They are, of course, gleefully picked up by the British National Party and by the tabloids. The BNP's website, to end on a cheery note, quote, refers to our friends at the immigration reform think tank, Migration Watch, and describes Coleman as a very distinguished demographer whom we trust. Migration Watch also penetrates into more respectable parts of the media. Both Coleman and his co-founder, Sir Andrew Green, made frequent appearances in the media, including the BBC. Green was even one of the three expert witnesses to a parliamentary investigation into the removal of asylum seekers. The student's aim is to bring out into the open the nature of Coleman's opinions, Coleman until their intervention did not refer to his membership of the Galton Institute in his media appearances on immigration. The Migration Watch website contains no mention of eugenics or its founder, Sir Francis Galton. End quote. Well, I will leave that article there, but I will let you you explore for yourself the interesting story of this demographer at Oxford, Professor David Coleman. And it does bring up the very real question of what nooks and crannies have the The acolytes of Galton's eugenics ideals, who very much still exist and still even rally around the Galton flag at institutions like the Galton Institute, but of course in other institutions besides across the world— well what nooks and crannies of the scientific establishment have these roaches scurried into? And it's interesting to note the development of such fields as biodemography, and behavioral eugenics, and other such euphemisms for what really is the continuation of the study of this master race philosophy, which ultimately goes back to the idea that these gentry, these British gentry, these gentlemen scientists, these illustrious members of these learned societies, are truly the the people who really deserve to rule over over the rest of humanity and to propagate themselves into the future. Now, all of this might sound crazy if you're hearing it for the first time, and I wholeheartedly encourage you to be skeptical and to go and take a look at all of these various linkages and take a look at the history of this eugenics idea, and I would, of course, suggest that you start by looking at some of the previous episodes of this podcast, which has expounded on this subject at great length. But it is at this point that I would like to call on you, dear listener, to help me in the quest of further exposing the members of this Galton Institute. You see, I would like to find out more about the Galton Institute and its practices myself, because I have no doubt that scratching the surface of an institution like this will reveal the, the rather... Uh, well unseemly uh, underside of what is no doubt a very nice glossy exterior that looks like a nice scientific institution but I think it's revealed in such aims as the promotion of the genetic counseling and birth control and uh, population control and population problems as they relate to development in third world countries I think when it, it, they talk about that in the activities section of the about page of the Galton Institute I think that at least tips the hat a little as to what these people are about, and the fact that the l- illustrious member David Coleman is a, the, a founding member of this Migration Watch might also give an idea of the very real racist ideology that is, of course, at the very heart of this pseudoscience that has unfortunately masqueraded as science for far too long. So, on that note, the Galton Institute webpage has in its uh, in its archives the f- past editions of the newsletter of the Galton Institute going back i can't tell how long quite a long time on the publications page of the Galton Institute website you can see a list of newsletters that goes back as far as 1991 although only some of them are clickable and those clickable ones are in pdf format for viewing and download But if you go and search on uh, Scroogle, hopefully, or Startpage.com, or another non-tracking search engine, you'll find that you can find previous episodes of the newsletter in HTM formats on the Galton Institute website. So I haven't quite figured out how to access those through the website themselves. And in fact, on the publications page, they have a lengthy list of what looks to be some very interesting populations, but all of the links are broken. And I wonder why that is, why they're either so uh, so lax at keeping their webpage up to date that they haven't noticed that all of the links to all of their publications are broken, or perhaps they just don't want people going back through the archives too deeply. And I think it might be more of the latter than the former. But at any rate... I would like to put it as a task for interested listeners out there in the audience to start going through this website and seeing what they can find via various search engines or other techniques in order to see what you can find in the backlogs and archives of the Galton Institute's website, because I have no doubt that there are some many, many, many more interesting nuggets and tidbits to be found about the proceedings of the Institute and the Institute's illustrious members, and I myself have only, as I say, really skimmed the service of some of these newsletters and taken a look at some of the issues. But as I say, there's much, much more to be found. So I will leave you there this week. And we will leave it on that note where I am asking you to help me out. And and of course, keep us informed of your searches. So of course, you can contact me through the contact form on CorbettReport.com, or you can call in live on my Corbett Report radio program, and we can discuss your results on air. I'd be interested to hear about them. But for right now, let's leave it there. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me for this episode of The Corbett Report and hoping that you will join me again next week for next week's edition.